0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And we've been talking about the Lord's Prayer because we want to be a praying people. And it was prior to him sharing these words that his disciples came, according to Luke chapter 11, after seeing him pray, they came to him and they said, teach us to pray like John. Teach us to pray in the very same manner in which you have been praying. And the way which the Lord responds is a matter in which he wants to ignite a relationship with God. The issue here is not so much just praying, but what the purpose of prayer is, which is to cultivate a relationship with God so that we might gain his perspective and that we might develop a genuine connection with the God of the universe. He tells us that when we pray, This is what we should pray in verse 9. This is how you should pray. It's a model of how we go about praying. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, sanctified, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of the not as... Uh, worthy manuscripts. It concludes, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I just love the phrase, forever and ever. Now when we think of this prayer, it's really in two parts. So we can sort of hang our hat on what's going on here. It's really in two parts. There's a vertical part, and there's a horizontal part. There's a part in which we address God about God, There's a part in which we address God about others, ourselves and others. It's no accident that when Messiah instructs us, the first part is to think about God. Things have to be right with God in order for our prayers and our lives to be right with others. So we have to have things in order vertically if we're going to have things in order horizontally. And that's what the prayer does. In fact, it's interesting because when we think of praying, we think of asking for things, and there's nothing wrong with asking for things, but asking for things follows on acknowledging our God. The first step is God, the second step is us, the first step is Him, the second step is others. We can think about our needs and others, but we need, first of all, to think about him and to connect ourselves with him. We need his perspective on things. That's why he says, pray thy will be done. We need to know his perspective on what is transpiring and to be submitting ourselves unto him for whatever his purposes are. Someone has said the Lord's Prayer is a prayer to the Father. And in these two sections, we can say we pray to the Father about him. We pray to the Father about the Father. In the second part, we're still praying to the Father, but now we're praying to the Father about others, and particularly those others who are also members of God's family. Because he says, give us this day our daily bread. And he's already been telling who the us is. The us are the disciples who are to be in prayer. These are the ones who are children of God, our Father. So the us, that's not to say we can't pray for the lost around us, we can't pray for the world's needs around us, I'm not suggesting that. But the Lord's Prayer is a little tighter than that. It's more intimate than that. It's a prayer unto the Father about him. But it's a prayer unto the Father about the Father's children put another way, if we want to keep all these F's in line, we pray to the Father about the Father, and we pray to the Father about the family. And so if you think of the Lord's Prayer that way, that might be helpful in terms of how we ought to pray, because that's what they asked Messiah. And what does he tell him? Pray to the Father about him. Pray to the Father about the family of God, principally, though not exclusively. So what does he tell us we ought to pray to the Father about? So notice what he starts with. He says, our father in heaven. So the first thing that we're to pray about is the nature of God. If we wanted to get uh, to keep all our words in order, we can have P words here because they fit very, very nicely. We can pray to the father about who he is, which is another way of saying we could pray to the father about his person, his personhood, his nature. And what this text is telling us, among other things, first and foremost, he is our Father. I think reference to God as Father only appears some fourteen times in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. But when we get to the, the Brit the New Covenant Scriptures, over and over again, God is addressed as Father, primarily by Messiah Himself. But here we are invited to address God as our Father. There are times when we are to address God as our Creator. We're to dress him as our maker. There are times when we are to acknowledge him as our Lord. When we are to see him as our redeemer and our savior. He is all of those things all the time. But what Messiah wants us to do is to cultivate an intimate connection with God. Where we see him as our father who is in heaven. Paul gets even more intimate, if I dare say it, than Messiah himself. Because in Romans 8, he says, we can cry out to him as Abba, Father. We can speak of him as our dad. And we can come before him like a child would come to a good, wholesome, loving father. And so the first thing is, we want to acknowledge in our prayer the nature of God. We want to praise him. In other words, this is why I said before, this is a moment of adoring our Lord. This is a time when we can present our words of adoration before God. And we are to come before him and say, our father who art in heaven. Now, when Yeshua makes reference to him as being in heaven, he doesn't mean to speak locally, in a localized manner, although it is true. God is everywhere. He's he's uh, omniscient or he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there is a sense in which when we speak of him being in heaven, he's over everything as well. He not only is present in everything, he is over everything. It's another way of saying God is in control of everything. God is sovereign then. So when we come before God and we say, our Father who art in heaven, we are acknowledging that he's in control of things. And when we fail to recognize, and I fail to recognize this reality uh, quite often, more often than I would like to admit. When we fail to acknowledge he's in control of everything, we're not honoring God as he ought to be honored. When we complain about how our life is going, what we are saying to God is you don't know what you're doing. You're not really in control. Our faith is being weakened. And therefore, we are losing ground in our intimacy with God. And that's what Yeshua is concerned with. He's concerned that we have a dynamic, genuine relationship with the living God. Not just praying words. He's concerned that these words are genuine to our hearts. And so if we're saying, as he's telling us, and we're to acknowledge him within the fullness of his person and all these aspects, all of these attributes, all of these characteristics of God, it's in that acknowledgement that we gain a new perspective on our own experiences. Because now we see our experiences in the context of an almighty God, a God who is in heaven above everything and in control of all that is. It puts us in the right frame of mind about what's going on in our lives. And when our lives are sort of out of sync, not going the way we like them in a manner in which we just don't understand, we remember our God is a God who is over and above all things and in control of all things. When God commands us to do certain things, be anxious for nothing, is an imperative. Yeshua tells us also, he knows every hair on our head. For some of us, it's not a problem, it's simple. But for others of us, <laughs> as mine's growing out, as others of us, we keep him on his toes. But he knows every aspect of our lives because he is the God who is in heaven. And so when we spend time with God in prayer, reflection, meditation, and think about who he is, it will deepen our relationship with him and help us gain perspective on what's going on in our lives. Now, if I go through the rest of this prayer in this manner, we'll be here for a couple of days. But let me just move on here to what else he tells us. Not only are we to acknowledge our Father who is in heaven, but hallowed be your name. We are to be ones that set apart God from all others. We're to set apart his name. That is to say, the fullness of character. We do that by acknowledging, as I just said, what we're going through in light of who he is. But think a moment about the names of God. And there are all kinds of names of God. We can't think about them all, but think about some of them. For example, at the very first name of God in the Bible is Elohim. You know, in the beginning, Bareshit bara Adonai, Bareshit bara. In the beginning, God created Eta Shemay arats. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word is Elohim, the first word, name for God that we're given. And what's interesting about the name of God, Elohim, is that it is a plural noun. So the other day I was up in Santa Clarita, we were talking about the law, the Tanakh, the law, Torah, the prophets, Naviim, and the writings, the Ketuvim. When you add the im ending, I am, if we transliterated it, when you have the im ending, you have a plural noun. So Ketuvim is writings, it comes from the Greek, uh, Hebrew word katav, which means to write. Or Naviim comes from the word Navi, prophet, prophets. So when we have El, that's this singular name for God. El, like Beth El, the house of God. Uh, El Yon, God Most High. But when we have Elohim, it's God's plural. So whenever you read about false gods, it's the word Elohim. But whenever Elohim is used for God, the interesting thing is there's always singular verbs. Now, I don't know about much about Spanish. I need to know much more, but I think this is true in probably many other languages. But when you have a noun that is modified, say, by an adjective or a verb, the verb form has to match the noun that it's connected to, right? So when you say Elohim, is that Spanish too? Thank you, Andreas. uh When you have Elohim... You have to have a verb that would literally translate, they created. But in Hebrew, what you found, bara is the third masculine singular, he created. So literally, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. So it doesn't make sense grammatically, but it makes perfect sense theologically. And so that's what the writers have to choose between. The New Testament does similar, by the way, with the word spirit. Pneuma, for example, in Greek, the word for a spirit is a neuter word. In Greek, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. It's a a neuter word, if I got my grammar right. And sometimes it will say, the text will say, he, the spirit, and it will have a masculine. But sometimes it will have a neuter, it, the spirit. And so some cults have come to the conclusion that because there are neuter pronouns used with numa spirit, the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a thing of some kind. But the writers of the Brit Shah have to make similar choices. Sometimes they can be right theologically and wrong grammatically. So they have he pronoun with a neuter word spirit or breath or wind. Sometimes they write grammatically correct and they're wrong theologically. It, the spirit. So we determine things not purely by its grammar, but by its context. So just with regard to the spirit, we know that the spirit of God is a person. Because it says, grieve not, among many things, the passage says, grieve not, The Holy Spirit in, what is it, Ephesians or or Galatians. Grieve not the spirit by which you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So the question is, if the Holy Spirit is a thing, how do you grieve a thing? I used to say to my students when I was teaching on this, I want everyone to get up out of their chair and I want you to grieve your chair. Make your chair really angry or frustrated with you. And you can't do that because you can only grieve persons. Only persons can grieve. And so the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Why? Because he's a person and not merely a thing. So back to Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun. And when it is used, it denotes God more, more often than not with regard to his power and his might. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So there's this creatorship, this power aspect of God that seems to be connected with that particular name of God. But another name for God that's really kind of cool to think about is the name El Elyon, God Most High. First time that name appears is in Genesis 14 when Abraham rescues Lot. And after he rescues Lot, he comes down into Israel, comes to Jerusalem, and he meets up with Melchizedek, who is the king priest of Israel. El Elyon, God Most High. But what's really kind of cool about El Elyon is it appears again, Moses uses this word not only in Genesis, but in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we are told that when God set the nations and assigned nations to various geographical regions. And the word that Moses used when he makes reference to God is El Elyon, God Most High, El Elyon. He said when El Elyon assigned various geographical areas to the nations, he did so in accordance with where he would establish his people Israel. In other words, God gave the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, some say Canaan, to the Jewish people. And once he made that assignment, all other nations were given the lands around it. But the land of Israel, we're told, was reserved for the Jewish people. In other words, El Elyon, God Most High, seems to be parallel to our Father in heaven, denoting the sovereignty of God. And therefore, he can set the nations wherever he wants. He can choose whatever nation he wants for himself, which he did by choosing Israel. In other words, God has the prerogative to do what he wants. And there's no one that can stay his hand or have him do differently than his own intention. And so when we think of the name of God, El El Elyon, we're saying, God, you are sovereign above all others. When we think of the sacred name of God, the unpronounceable name of God, Yahweh, some say, wrongly, some say Jehovah, but whatever name you want to use, that sacred name of God, yud heh vav name for God. I think, though I could be wrong, but I think principally attached to the sacred name of God is the idea of God as Redeemer. It is that sacred name of God that is first introduced to Moses when he's on Mount Horeb and he sees the bush that is burning and is not being consumed. The Lord tells him to come forward and as he does so, he's told to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And what does God tell him? He tells him, you are to go to Pharaoh and say what? Let my people go, which is another way of saying I've come to redeem my people. I've come to rescue them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So this is the name. he say, well, who should I tell them? The elders of Israel is, has sent me. And he says, tell them the sacred name of God is what is pronounced, although we don't know how to pronounce it today. But the sacred name of God being pronounced by God, he said, tell them Yahweh has sent you. The one who is the great redeemer of all. Because he's come down to redeem his people there's so many other names we could think of isaiah 9 6 has four or five of them right wonderful counselor mighty god uh everlasting father prince of peace we could talk about all those names of god and perhaps the most wonderful name of god to us as this exactly as the scriptures say you know if you know his name you know what can you tell what is it in book of proverbs or whatever. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Well, what is his name? If you can tell, it is Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua, the Messiah. When we think of the name Yeshua, of course, we think of him as Savior. If we're going to hallow the name of God, it means that we acknowledge these truths that are revealed through his variety of names, and we live in light of them. You want to hallow the name of God? You need to acknowledge him as Redeemer. Otherwise, you're not hallowing his name. You want to hallow the name of God that means we accept his sovereignty over our lives as El Elyon. We want to hallow the name of God as Elohim that means we acknowledge he is all powerful and can do over and above anything we might think or ask. We want to acknowledge him as our as uh hallow his name that we that means we acknowledge Yeshua and we cry out for his mercy and grace that we might be saved. And then we are setting apart God from all other gods. Think of the names of God and then think, do I live my life in light of the characteristics that his name reveals? And when you do, you are hallowing his name. You are separating him from all others. It's not enough to say, hallowed be your name. It comes through our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes in light of the kind of God it is that we serve. And then he tells us, not only do we pray to the Father about the Father's person, but we pray to the Father about the Father's program. And that's why he says, thy kingdom come. Now whenever the word kingdom is used in scripture, it always means the millennial kingdom. It always means the kingdom on earth. It's never used for some non-substantial, if we can call it that, kingdom. It's never an abstract concept. Although it is true that wherever the king is present, something of his kingdom is made manifest. That's why he said the kingdom of God is among you. Because as long as the king is present, something of the kingdom is manifested as well. But Yeshua is telling us all that God has in mind to do has not yet been done. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to pray, thy kingdom come. There's more that he has in store. Now, if you think of the scriptures, you think of history, all you need to do is think of four eras, four moments, four acts, if you will. It's very simple to think about what God is up to when we sort of take history and put it into the grid God has outlined. And here is that grid, just four points. There's the point of the moment of the era of creation. There's the moment of fall. There's the moment of redemption. And there's the moment of restoration or consummation. That's it. That's the Bible. That's history. There's a point at which things started, the creation. There's the point at which the things that God started went awry. That's the fall. There is a point at which God is doing something about when, what went awry by providing redemption. And there's a time at which that time of redemption will come to fruition and the time of consummation will occur. We are living in the moment of redemption. That's why Peter says the reason why the Lord hasn't returned soon is that he's not willing any should perish but that all should come to repentance. We're in a moment of redemption where God is making a spiritual correction for the spiritual fall that had occurred many generations ago. But there's coming a time when he's going to make a correction not only to the spiritual aspect of things, but the physical aspect of things. That's the consummation of all things. Most of history is redemption. Think about this. Just two chapters are devoted to creation. Six days is all it took. It's amazing to think about. Boom, it's all here in six days. Look at how much time it's taking in order to bring redemption to our world. Thousands upon thousands or more years. But creation, six days. (laughs) Just a short two chapters. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between the creation and the fall. Could have been thousands upon thousands of years. Who knows? We don't know. But the fall then is recorded for us in one chapter, chapter three. That's it. The rest of the Bible, through the majority of the book of Revelation, is all about redemption. And it's the last two chapters that are about restoration. Now think of it this way. Messiah is to come twice. First time for redemption. That's what we've seen. Second time for a moment of consummation and restoration. So when we think about what God is up to, just four things you need to think about. It's the creator, the fall, redemption, which is what he's up to and the restoration of all things when he returns. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, would you bring about the restoration of all things. It's no accident that the scripture ends with that prayer. John prays, even so, come Lord Yeshua, come quickly. That's how it ends. In fact, if you look at the the Hebrew scriptures, there's a real problem with the Hebrew scriptures, no matter how you organize them. The Christian Bible organizes the books differently than the Hebrew Scriptures, but it doesn't matter. Whichever organized manner you accept, there's a real problem with the Hebrew Scriptures. From a Jewish point of view, it ends with the book of Chronicles. And when Chronicles ends, it says, Let us go up to the land, because it ends with Cyrus giving permission for the Jewish people to return. So it says, Let us go up to the land. And of course, the question is, for what purpose? Why? I mean, that's where it ends. And so where do we go from there? You know, that's 536 B.C., you know, B.C.E., whatever you want term you want to use. That's 500 years before the time of Messiah. Where do we go from here? And the Hebrew Scriptures leave us, leaves us flat. It leaves us saying we need more to finish the story. The story's not over. Or if you like the Christian Bible, it doesn't matter. The book of Malachi, it says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the fathers to their children, their children to their fathers. Okay. So when does that happen? You know, it just leaves you empty. But that's because the Hebrew Scriptures is not the whole Bible. It's not the whole of God's revelation. It leaves us waiting for the rest of God's revelation to tell us why it is we ought to go up to the land or who it is we're supposed to wait for who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the Brit Hashah tells us, Yeshua of Nazareth is the one who will come. Elijah will be his herald. And we need to go up to the land. Why? Because that's where the Messiah is coming to. And so it is the book of Revelation that ends the story for us. Otherwise, we're left with, well, let's just go back to the beginning and see if we miss something. The point is when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying, establish your kingdom. Bring a conclusion to all that you have intended and bring about the fullness of your promises to your people Israel, to David, to whom you said you would have a son to sit on his throne forever and ever. We need the son to come in order to fulfill this promise to David. We need the son to come because the Lord had promised a land, a geographical area to the Jewish people, which they've never inhabited its entirety of. And so we need the Son to come to fulfill the promise to Abraham and his descendants. We need the promised Messiah to come because Jeremiah tells us the Lord is going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. A new covenant whereby the law will not be something we have to live up to, but something that will be implanted in our hearts, that's made manifest by the working of the Spirit of God that enables us to live as God would have us to live. We need Messiah to come because we are in sin and our sin keeps making a mess of our lives. And that's why we can't get to it this morning, but that's why he then tells us we need to pray for pardon. Forgive us of our sin. That's the whole problem that we struggle with. There it is, the fall, creation, the fall. That's our problem. Ultimately, that's our problem of everything. It comes right back to the fall. And to our sin, we need Messiah to come to bring redemption and completion from the effects of the fall and the effects of sin on our lives. And that sin is so pervasive. I don't know if I mentioned before or not, but there are five different words in the Brit HaDeshat, the New Covenant Scriptures, that are translated "sin" because sin occurs in a variety of ways. So, for example, there's the word harmartia, which is the word that means to fall short. I used to translate it as missing the mark. The Hebrew word hatah is more like that, missing the mark. But the Greek word is not missing the mark so much as falling short. I used to say it's sort of like an archer. You know, he shoots the arrow and one of the arrows doesn't even hit the target. You know, another one hits it far out. Some of us hit it pretty close, you know, like James says, if we keep all the law but miss one, we're guilty of it all. Some of us get close. But you know, the Greek word doesn't mean that. It means that when we fire the arrow, the arrow doesn't even get near the target. Forget about missing the target. It doesn't get to the target. It falls short. That's why Paul says we have all sinned and fallen short of the target, which is the glory of God. It's more like if we all lined up by the Santa Monica Pier or somewhere along the coast and said, okay, let's try to jump to Catalina. You know, jump as far as you want. We're all falling short. Some of us may be Olympiads and we'll go, to, I don't know how far they jump these days, 20 feet or something. It was just kind of mind-boggling. But they go way out there. But it's still, you know, an, inf- an infinitesimal distance from Catalina. Think about trying to jump to the glory of God. Forget about it. And so harmatia means we fall short. We can't even get close to the target. Forget about trying to miss the target. We can't even get there with it. There are other words as well. There's the word anomia. Namas is the Greek word for law. Ah, before it is no law. So anomia is like lawlessness, rebelliousness just doing whatever it is we want to do without any regard for the laws of God. Sometimes our sin is, I don't care what God says. I'm not doing it. It's lawlessness. Sometimes it's simply, we go about our lives and no matter how hard we try, we just can't jump to the glory of God. We fall short of it. There are other words. For example, a word that means uh, to step over the line. It's sort of like you walk uh, near a neighbor's lawn, and they're planting seed or whatever, and it says, don't step on the grass, you know. And you, you sort of you say, you know, and you just a little step. You know, it's like stepping over the line. You know, it's falling short, rebelling, stepping over the line. There's another word that simply means to sort of slip. You know, in Galatians, Paul says that those who slip into sin, those of you that are stronger, restore such a one with grace and gentleness, mindful of the fact that we also can so slip into sin. It wasn't anything that was really determinative. It wasn't premeditative. It just, gee, I didn't realize I'm running down that path. You know, and you find yourself in a quagmire of sin, though you never intended and had no idea how you even got there. Just sort of slipped in on us and took us captive. Sometimes that happens. And another word that's used here is the word for debt. That's why it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea is that we've run up a debt before God that needs to be paid and so when we pray to God we say Lord forgive us all that we've run up against you you know and all that our debt has accumulated so high and it can never be paid it could never be restored we just owe too much and so we say Lord if you would forgive that debt and allow it to be forgotten you remember the parable yeshua said he talked about a debt and the man came and begged and said listen there's no way i'm going to pay this debt it's like you know trillion dollars and the uh the master said okay i'll forgive the debt and then afterwards it says that a man came up to the individual who was relieved of his debt who was owed like a hundred dollars The guy says, look, just give me a break, man. It's a hundred bucks. I can't come up with it right now. Oh, no, no, no. And he throws him into prison. And then when the master finds that out, he's not particularly happy. And he brings judgment on the one who had been unkind to the one that owed him. That's why Yeshua says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's saying that forgiven individuals forgive others. Sometimes it's hard. But they come to a place where they realize that because of all the debt they have been forgiven of, it becomes easier for us to forgive the debt that is owed to us by our fellow human being. Because our fellow human being could never accumulate the kind of debt that we have accumulated against God. And so Yeshua is not saying, I will not forgive you unless you forgive what the, what the scriptures talk about, and I'll conclude here, but what the scriptures talk about are two kinds of forgiveness. There is what we know as, we'll call it judicial forgiveness, where the judge forgives us of our debt and we're set free. But there's also what we might call family forgiveness. That's what some of the scholars refer to it as. paternal forgiveness. That is to say, when a child violates or disobeys his parents, he doesn't cease to be a child of the parent. But what has happened is the relationship has been harmed until the child comes to the father or vice versa and asks for forgiveness. The status of the relationship hasn't changed, but the experience of the relationship has. That's what Yeshua is talking about. When we come to know the Lord, we ask him to forgive us of our sin and all of our sin, past, present, future is forgiven. And we are children of God forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua, Romans 8. However, when we sin and we fail to confess our sin before God, well, then the joy of the Lord can be lost the joy of that relationship can be cut off. And we'll find ourselves not really walking with God like Adam and Eve did in the cool of the day or like Enoch did who walked with God and was not because God took him. Our relationship is hurt and harmed and our intimacy with God is now uh, affected. What Yeshua is talking about is when we pray to the Father, forgive us of our debts, because we all sin, even now that we've come to know the Lord. He's saying in order to restore your family relationship with God as Father and to maintain that intimacy, remember that's what God, what Messiah is principally concerned with in this prayer. It necessitates that we confess our sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we've experienced that, then we will be ones who forgive others when they sin against us as well. And when we do, then our relationship with God is strengthened and our connection with him is restored. So let's pray as we think about all that's happening at Beth is a swirl of stuff, and we'll be having meetings to talk more about this but we need to be in prayer, and we need to pray, acknowledging God for who he is. There are other things we need to be in prayer. We need to pray for protection, as he says at the very end. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can talk about that. But principally, we need to be right with God. And that occurs when we acknowledge him for who he is. And when we fail to do that by our actions and fall into sin one way or another, we pray for forgiveness that our relationship with him would be restored. So, Father, we pray before you this morning. And we would remember the kind of God that you are as reflected in all the variety of names that we know about you. And as we think of who you are as the great God of this universe the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Father, we pray that we would indeed hallow your name, separate you apart, not only in our thoughts, but allowing our thoughts to be lived out in our actions. And so, Father, may who you are be that which impacts and affects how we live and the choices we make. Father, we would pray that your kingdom would come and that Your, our Messiah and Savior would return and establish his kingdom on earth. Might you open the hearts of your chosen people because they need to call upon you in order that you would return. They need to say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. So might you move upon your people. Might you use Beth Ariel among the Jewish people here in Los Angeles and all of the churches in this greater LA area to be a catalyst in planting seeds and opening hearts to the truth of who Messiah is. Father, may we we be ones that are submissive to your will. And your word teaches us what your will for us is. Once when your son was asked, what must we do to do the will of God who sent you? He said to believe on him whom he has sent. So we know one of your wills is to believe your son in everything that he has said and everything that he has done. So, Father, we pray that we might trust you with our lives as the great sovereign God of the universe. Bring to bear in and through us what your will is for us and not what our desire might be for ourselves. And so help us, Lord, to be submissive to where you lead, how you guide, and to your call. And then, Father, we pray even as we thought, about your great redemptive grace, that, Lord, in calling out upon your name, confessing our sin before you, we can be forgiven and we can be free. And so I pray that we might be ones who do that. And in experiencing your forgiveness, might we be ones who forgive others. And there are some experiences that we've all shared that make it really hard to forgive. So, Lord, may you work on our hearts in your compassionate and gentle way to bring us to that place. And in doing so, Lord, might we attribute all praise and glory to yourself. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers.